Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with a very special guest. I've got Landon Castle with me. He is a NASCAR driver and an early crypto adopter and miner. So I'm super excited to talk to him about his background in racing, but also how he got into crypto. And he's been in it since almost the very beginning, and he's even mined some crypto. So how does a race car driver uh, also is a Bitcoin miner? How does that work? We're going to talk to him all about that. So welcome, Landon. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Diana. I'm happy to be on the show. Awesome. Uh, so I, I want to start with your background as a race car driver before we get into the crypto stuff. Uh, I know you've been sort of driving, quote unquote, driving and racing since you were a little kid, probably just a few years old. So take us all the way back to when you first um, started driving and racing. And uh, how did you get into this and become an NASCAR driver? You're absolutely right. I've been driving my whole life and um, always loved racing and been into it. My family's in the car business. So cars are very, you know, just part of our family and part of our culture, I guess you could say, and always wanted to be a race car driver. So started out in go-karts and worked my way up into full-size cars as a teenager. Uh, But by the time I was 17, I got hired to be Jimmy Johnson's test driver at Hendrick Motorsports and was driving full-on NASCAR race cars and doing it for a living straight out of high school and made my first NASCAR start in the Bush Series in 2007 and have really navigated my way through the sport ever since. Awesome. And you'll have to forgive me for my lack of racing knowledge, but uh, for others who are maybe wondering the same thing, what made you choose NASCAR as opposed to like Formula One or IndyCar? What's like the main difference between NASCAR and the other big ones that people may have heard of out there? That's a great question. And as far as a driver's path, where you end up has a lot to do with where you came from. You know, we I came from racing short tracks in the Midwest. Um, I'm an Iowa kid. And, and that sort of background lends you towards the NASCAR direction, either IndyCar or NASCAR. And also NASCAR is and was at the time the, the premier uh, motorsports in the country. Um, it, it's bigger than IndyCar. You know, obviously the Indy 500 is a huge event, is a huge event and a great race. My heart was always towards NASCAR. Uh, so when you grow up racing short tracks, ovals, stock cars, that's where that discipline sends you the NASCAR direction. Uh, to go Formula One racing, it's very international. Um, at a young age, I could have focused more on road racing and, and tracks with left and right hand turns, maybe gone to Europe and raced in Europe. It was actually something that we looked at doing uh, was sending me off to Europe and spending the summer racing out there. We didn't end up doing it. And I'm glad we didn't. Um, you know, I'm glad that I went the path that I did and, and race NASCAR, but, uh, that's sort of the path for, uh, a formula one driver. And ultimately the difference between the two sports, or there's a ton of differences. I mean, the cars are completely different. Um, the way that the teams operate is very different. Um, even though they're both motorsport, they're, they're two different disciplines of motorsport. So it's almost like comparing American football to rugby, you know, very similar sports and the same athletes could probably play and have, you know, their skills could easily cross over. uh, But the discipline is different. There's things that Formula One drivers would have a hard time learning in a NASCAR race and vice versa. Gotcha. Um, And you mentioned a few things there, short track as opposed to, I guess, long track. What what does that mean? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, short track, long track. That's that's pretty simple. Um, You know, in the sport, maybe we call it short track, speedway, super speedway. A short track is a track that's under a mile in length. So if you know anything about NASCAR and you've heard of Martinsville or Bristol, uh, those are those are short tracks and those are the tiniest small race tracks where the cars are beaten and bang and the drivers are leaning on each other the cars get used up and they get a lot of dents on their fenders and um, usually there's a good fight or something like that in the track as well 
Uh, that's a short track. And and most grassroots racing, drivers growing up, local races, you know, even if you know nothing about racing, no matter where you live, if you search um, for your local short track, there's probably a, a grassroots local short track within 50 miles of where you live. And you could go watch a race on a Friday or Saturday night. Um, those people out there racing, those are my people. That's that's where I grew up racing, and I probably raced at wherever you live. I probably raced at a track that's near you. Uh, and when you get up to NASCAR, uh, the tracks get bigger and faster. In NASCAR, we still race on short tracks probably eight to ten times a year, and they're huge stadiums, and they hold hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, but most of our schedule is made up of super speedways or speedways, and those are tracks that are a mile and a half um, to two miles. In fact, uh, we race at Daytona International Speedway, the two and a half mile racetrack, and these are giant facilities, um, hold a couple hundred thousand people, and the track and the cars go two hundred miles an hour. And then, is there like a set length for NASCAR races? Like, how many laps around this track do you go? It really just depends on the racing series, the NASCAR Cup series. Uh, races up to 500 miles, actually 600 miles. The longest race of the season is the Coca-Cola 600 at Charlotte Motor Speedway. The Daytona 500 is a 500-mile race. In the Xfinity Series, which is the next series down, uh, the races are anywhere from 250 to 300 miles. Okay, so a 600-mile race, how long are you sitting in the car for? <laughs> that race takes about four and a half hours. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> And our cars are really hot too. It's it's been the cars have been getting hotter and hotter um, over the past couple of years. The in, interior of our car is anywhere from 120 to 140 degrees uh, in the summertime when it's when it's really hot out. So, how do you survive in there for four hours? You you have to hydrate. You have to be in shape. Um, I have a nutrition plan over the course of an entire race. Uh, my my preferred form of training for physical training for the car is long distance endurance training. I feel like it's very similar to what we go through in the car. So like marathon running, Ironman training, that's actually what I like to do outside of the car. And I have a nutrition plan for both of them that are about, that's about the same. So I take about 300 calories per hour in the car. And that's with about 20 ounces, 20, 20 to 30 ounces of fluids per hour with those 300 calories in the car. So are you like driving and snacking in the car? Or do you have like an IV hooked up to you or how do you, how do you get nutrition while you're driving? The same, really the same way like a cyclist would uh, in the Tour de France. I, I take it all through a bottle and it's all mixed into the bottle. Um, and that's where I get all my carbs and, and, and calories. Gotcha. Incredible. Oh, the other thing I was going to ask you about is the stock cars. So stock car racing is different from, I, I guess, I don't know what the, the word for Open a non-stock wheel. car. Open wheel racing. Yep. Uh, because it isn't stock car the one that gets a little more physical and aggressive where you can sort of like bumper car each other a little bit? Yeah, it is. And that's that's where I come from. I'm a stock car driver. Uh, we're just a little bit more rough around the edges. We're a little more physical with the cars. Um, stock car racing doesn't have very strict policies on driver aggression. So, and I'm using racing terms a little bit, but you can use someone up in a stock car. You can, you can lean against them, bump them out of the way. Um, I mean, you can even crash somebody. It's, it's, there's certain, there's certain levels of latency that, Na you know, NASCAR, um, if you go over the line and, and put someone in danger intentionally, NASCAR will step in that way. But for the most part, uh, if you've ever watched uh, uh, Days of Thunder, uh, Rubbin's racing, and and that's that's sort of the mantra for stock car racing. And open wheel racing, it's a lot different because the cars aren't protected by fenders; they're not protected by a lot of bodywork. And you know, you if you bounce tires with another driver in open wheel racing, it can be incredibly dangerous. So that racing culture has a lot more regulation around driver aggression and how the drivers are allowed to to race against each other on the track. Uh, but in stock car racing, it's kind of a free for all. Yeah. So what's your strategy with, you know, like bumping people off the track and stuff? Cause I'm sure like you, you have to weigh in your head, you know, like I could bump them off a little bit and get ahead, but like there's a fine line between doing that and potentially causing like a really bad crash. Right. Yeah. You have to be, you have to be smart with your aggression. 
Um, you have to protect a your own car and and b you know you have to know who you're going to be aggressive with and and what the uh, ramifications of that could be. Uh, in our sport, we race against the same drivers every single week, thirty six weeks a year. So um, you can go run some guy over and hit him out of the way if you want, but but the very next week he might be coming right back for you. Um, so it's, it's very, um, it's very indicative of life, you know, and, and, um, and it's very self-policing and, and NASCAR drivers, um, generally do a pretty good job of it. I mean, it's, it's NASCAR is very hands-off on, on aggression with drivers. They let us handle it amongst ourselves. Um, they step in from time to time when things get egregious, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I don't, I don't wreck someone or knock someone out of the way unless I'm willing to pay the price on the other end. Yeah. Wow. Lots of like game theory there and strategy with, you know, just like weird. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Last, uh, last quick question about driving and then we'll get into crypto. So I know that you're being sponsored right now by Voyager. Can you talk a little bit more about Voyager, what that is for people who aren't familiar? Like how do sponsorships work in NASCAR? Do you get approached by a bunch of different brands and then you decide, or do you go and like reach out to brands? Like, um, how does that whole process work? You know, it's a lot of both. Um, NASCAR, is at, at its core, you know, racing is awesome and, and everybody loves the most, the purest form of their sport. Uh, but it's a marketing business. I mean, we have tens of millions of fans uh, in NASCAR and we have millions of people that watch every single week live on, on TV. I mean, we're on a broadcast um, television every single week. So uh, it, it's a huge uh, platform for brands and entire segments to promote their products. So we get approached by potential sponsors we also reach out to a lot of potential sponsors and for me voyager is one that is just aligned with me personally that i reached out to and built a relationship with steve ehrlich the ceo a couple years ago and uh being in crypto voyager is a brokerage platform a crypto brokerage platform uh we just built a relationship and wanted to find a way for us to succeed together and and we kicked that off this june uh with a sponsorship on my race car from june basically the entire second half of the racing season so voyager if if you haven't heard of the app um, or the community it's a it's a crypto brokerage platform you can download it on on your smartphone you can uh, sign up and and link your account and and buy crypto right there and they have over 60 different cryptocurrencies that you can buy and trade um, on their platform, but they also pay really good interest rates on their platform as well. So if you hold USDC, um, they pay 9% on that. They pay, I think, almost 6% on Bitcoin. So they have a really, really good interest program, and then they have a, a loyalty program as well through um, their native token, which is the Voyager token. So it's just a really, it's a really good organic partnership that makes the car looks great because it's a beautiful royal blue purplish color. The car stands out uh, and we do a lot of cool stuff together on social media as well. Yeah, I've seen the car. It, it looks super cool. I love the colors as well. Uh, very cool. All right. So I, I want to dive into your crypto journey. So I know that you got into Bitcoin back in like 2013 or something super early like that. And you actually started mining Bitcoin. But I don't know the story of like how you heard about crypto in the first place. And what was it that caught your attention? So take us all the way back. Yeah, I, I have a lot of interesting early crypto stories. Uh, you know, it didn't click for me all of a sudden. But around 2013 was when I first heard of it, uh, which funny enough, and I tell this story, at some point, my brother's going to ask me to stop telling this story. But um, I know that my brother was using Bitcoin back in those days, but I always say that I don't know what he was using it for. <laughs> I think our listeners could probably take a good guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's, I, I, knew what, I knew what Bitcoin was. Um, I knew that there was this, you know, magic internet money aspect um, to Bitcoin, uh, it didn't really click for me until about 2014 when a good friend of mine, Josh Wise, got sponsored by the Dogecoin community from the Dogecoin Reddit. They didn't pay in Dogecoin. 
but the community raised the the funds themselves and then liquidated it and paid the sponsorship to get Dogecoin on his race car. And that was the moment where I was like, okay, this I'm going to pay attention to this and figure out what's going on here. And I started exploring like, what are, what can you do with this? What does Bitcoin mean? What does Dogecoin mean? That's when I really started to try to understand it. But I was I, I kind of became all in on crypto to the point where I was like, I want to learn this space. And uh, so it was not long after that that I started mining it and and got to the point where I mined several different cryptos, um, but had a, had a fairly modest mining farm that I operated for about two years, over two years. Still hold every coin that I mined, plan on holding them for a long time. And uh, which which is something funny that my wife and I always talk about because she's just like, you know, you should sell some of it. You know, when I tell her it's it's like generational or that I want to hold it for a long time, she always kind of rolls her eyes at me. I've bought it. I've traded it. I've mined it. You know, one of the aha moments that I, that I always comment on with my wife was, you know, literally this year in May when when Bitcoin hit 60,000, my wife said, you know, I wish you would have bought more. I feel like it's a very like tagline for bitcoin you know for for people uh that have loved ones or close family members that have followed them you know and they're through their journeys to finally say like i wish you would have bought more uh because my wife has always been skeptical or like what are you doing or should we have should we really be putting this much money into it so that was kind of like a uh, an aha moment i guess uh but but you know a couple years ago I had seen what crypto had done for my personal portfolio, and I was very interested and invested in it personally. Um, but I, in 2018, I really wanted it wanted to take it to the next level in terms of my professional career. So I started really, you know, focusing on networking in the space, and and that's when I met Steve Ehrlich from Voyager um, within 2019, and and we just had stayed in touch ever since then. I met several other people from the space and sort of built these relationships and these friendships um, that are all crypto endemic because I wanted this to be part of my professional career and, and be on my race car. I, I'm curious too, like are a lot of people in the racing community into crypto or are you sort of a lone wolf? Um, I, there's a lot of them that are, there's some drivers that are into it. I don't know to what degree. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's any that are really as into it as I am, but I know that there's some drivers that, um, bought it, they trade it. Uh, they ask me questions about it. Um, I've helped people get set up on the Voyager platform. I will say that there's engineers that have messaged me that I've worked with on teams that have messaged me and said, Hey, I've been mining crypto or I mine Ethereum or, which is funny. It's very engineering thing. I, that's kind of funny that, that I get those messages. Yeah, for sure. So how do you explain crypto to like your, your teammates or your competitors or your crew or anybody in your community that is like, yo, I know you're like the crypto dude. What is this? <laughs> it just depends on the level of, of someone that I'm talking to and what what it seems like they're interested. I try to, you know, keep it as simple as possible for some people and just explain. I enjoy explaining the idea of digital asset, whether, and it doesn't have to be money, right? It's just like the fact that what Bitcoin, what Satoshi invented was this ability to trade something or to transact something digitally that can't be copied. It can't be duplicated it, it can't be controlled i think that's really cool that's so paramount to the entire space i just had this conversation with someone that was very surface level that had no understanding and said what is this cryptocurrency thing i don't get it and instead of trying to explain even the scarcity aspect or the investment aspect it was just like look this is what this is the problem that bitcoin solved you know all of these other technologies and all these other cryptocurrencies after that are taking that technology and adding to it or or complementing it. I do like starting there when I'm talking to somebody who's just saying, hey, you know, you and I can exchange something in person right now and nobody can stop us from doing it. But how would you do that something like that digitally? I mean, for me, too, it was really that same concept you're talking about, like the decentralization that leads to autonomy that like really spoke to me. It wasn't, you know, the the financial investment aspect or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, I am totally with you on that. I think that's a very compelling uh, argument or use case um, for crypto. For sure. 
Another thing I'm wondering, too, is like, so, okay, you started out mining Bitcoin and some other uh, cryptocurrencies. And then as you've sort of like as the space has evolved over time and then you've been in the space for so long, what aspects of crypto are you most interested in today? What is it like DeFi, NFTs, DAOs? Like what is like top of mind for you uh, nowadays? In a bull market, which, you know, I would say that we're in a bull market right now. In a bull market, I, I get in, interested in all of it, right? Um, so, you know, NFTs, I'm more interested in NFTs now than, than over the past year, right? Just because the market's great and things are all over the place. So now you're starting to look at these other projects. Um, I think DeFi is really cool. I, I'm very, I, I tiptoe around DeFi an awful lot. Um, because there's, there's so, it, it is kind of the wild west. I mean, if crypto itself wasn't the wild west, um, DeFi really feels like it's the wild west. Um, so I, I, I'm really interested in DeFi, even though I tiptoe around it. And I also don't, I don't know if I articulate it very well yet, or I don't, I don't know if I understand a lot of DeFi very well. I'm, I'm really into the, the coins that I'm holding and I'm into earning interest on them. On Voyager, I mean, I know that sounds like an advertisement, but but I think that's I think it's incredible how you know I can have money in my bank account and earn nothing on it, right? And in fact, you know, it's the dollar is in, inflating um, like crazy right now, and I'm not getting any interest on my money by lending it to the bank um, and letting the bank take it and lend it out, but I can put money. Um, on a platform like Voyager and earn incredible interest because Voyager is is passing that through to me. So I'm really into that right now as well. But yeah, I would say between just my core token holdings and um, and DeFi and NFT, those are probably where I'm the most interested. Yeah, for sure. You don't have to answer this, but what coins are you holding right now that you're most excited about? I'm sure people will want to know. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm super careful. I definitely don't like giving it or I can't give advice, you know, I don't want to give it financial advice. Um, it, because I've been in the space so long, you know, Bitcoin is, is, is a very important part of my crypto portfolio. Uh, Voyager token is also one I, I'm, I'm very interested in the the community tokens that um, have really taken off this year. Um, because I, I like that, um, you know, you take, okay, so we've, for years and years, we've been going to Starbucks and, and buying coffee, right? And you earn, you earn points and you can use those points for things. Um, I think it's really cool how this, this cryptocurrency is now allowing that model to really return, not just, um, loyalty points that you can use, but, but like real equity, you know, things that can generate wealth. And that's what um, a coin, a token like the Voyager token can do for you. If you're on the Voyager platform and you're trading, you can get discounts on your trading. You can get um, interest on the token. I think StormX is another really good example of that for you if you're shopping a lot. So uh, those are those are projects that that I'm very interested in and it seemed cool to me. The NFT stuff is kind of cool. Like I've got um, a couple NFTs that I own that you know, I, I get like the non-fungible token. I, I get it, right? I'm a crypto guy. I get it. I'm still working through my mind, the whole like owning a JPEG, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to dumb it down to the meme itself, right? And the scarcity in that. But but like, I, I love these projects. I love the communities that they that generate because um, any, any one of those projects, um, like Badass Bulls that I own a couple NFTs in there, any one of these projects that has a really good organized and energetic community, you just know that there's something good that can come out of that. And that's, you know, even if you're not convinced of owning a JPEG or something like that, you have to have an open mind that, hey, if there's a thousand people that are invested in this project and are willing to reinvest in it or willing to, you know, collectively go from whatever direction they want to go, um, there's a lot of leverage in the market. Uh, with that. And those are things that are worth investing in to me. There's some pretty cool artists out there. Uh, one that I like to keep an eye on is a very young artist named Fawocious. Uh, so I'm, I've been I've been watching their work. And there's a really cool um, collection of Fawocious pieces on the Uniquely 
uh, platform that uh, is that's now we're getting like deep into the depths of crypto and NFTs. Uh, but Uniquely is an interesting platform where you can where you can wrap NFTs into like this ETF, I guess. Um, and that's just like I I don't know. This whole space just blows me away, and it's stuff that I don't I really don't. Sometimes I just don't understand. <laughs> and uh, but. But man, you just go deeper and deeper. So you know, Felocious is a really cool artist, and and they've got some really good stuff. And I'm always keeping an eye on on that as well. I love it. I I'm a big NFT fan myself, so love talking about NFTs all the time. I'm wondering, you mentioned you know a few things like community is something that has really drawn you into NFTs, even if you don't understand like the underlying value of a, a JPEG, if you want to put it that way. What is your process for identifying? NFT projects to invest in? Like, how did you find the badass bulls? And like, what was it that drew you in? So, uh, I mean, so specifically the badass bulls was through the trade the chain community, which is a crypto trading community. They, their, their proprietary tools um, are really useful for crypto trading in particular, the sentiment tool, uh, which follows crypto sentiment on social media. So they actually, their sentiment tools can really help traders identify um, just what the public is saying about a token, whether it's Bitcoin or StormX or, I mean, they've got tons of cryptos that they follow. So uh, that's an interesting tool. And I belong to that community. They're also a a partner on my race car. Um, And if nothing else, their discord is worth the membership. You know, you become a member of trade the chain, you can join their discord and they have really smart analysts. um, And that's where like, I don't, you know, I, I don't really trade crypto a lot, but I do buy it a lot and and I'm buying it on Voyager a lot. So, you know, I'm always going to the trade chain discord, looking at the technical analysts, seeing what they're saying and trying to kind of make my own assessments from there. So the badass bulls um, came from that. And I, I don't know if that was I don't know if there was a lot of technical an- uh, analysis into that as much as it was the community was just like, oh, look at this awesome NFT. And we kind of dove into it. And then the Badass Bulls has a really cool Discord and they're super active and they're really active on Twitter. And, you know, a bunch of us made it into our profile pictures for a while. I changed mine back, but uh, <laughs> but we had it at our profile pictures for a while. And HQ Spider, um, which is a friend of mine from Bars. Barstool is Dan Diorio. Um, he got into Badass Bulls as well, and he's got like several of them and made it his profile picture. So, you know, I, I, to answer the first part of your question, how do I assess these? To me, community is one of the biggest things, right? Like, okay, if there's a project that someone has reached out to me about or, or something that I stumbled upon, I just start looking on their social media. I look for their Discord. I look for their Telegrams. And I try to figure out, like, what does their community look like? you know, who, how active are they? How passionate are they? How organized are they? And, and then what's, what's the use case around this, this token, right? You know, for, for taking NFTs aside for a second and looking at a token like StormX or Voyager, you could look at the use case and say, okay, this is, you know, a rewards token for online shopping, or this is a rewards token for, uh, for the Voyager platform. Well, the Voyager platform has, a million and a half accounts, right? They've got, I think they've got almost a million funded accounts um, and they're growing at an exponential rate. So if this token is a use for um, paying interest on that platform, getting discounts on that platform, that's, that's a token that's, that's very interesting, right? Um, So I, that's really, it's like the community and the use case of the tokens. Now with the NFT communities, I'm starting to see these these communities form like like um, you know say badass bulls said hey anybody that's that is a token holder if you connect your MetaMask wallet to this Discord you get you know special permissions or or these other you know other sites or other I don't know there's there's other places that you end up going Telegram groups where if you're a token holder you get in you get into it now you're part of an exclusive club. And so we've, we're like, there's that potential that these NFT communities really start to branch beyond just the JPEG. For me, I see an opportunity with my community, you know, and I think there's something that, that I could do with that. On the esports side of things, another race car driver and I, Parker Kligerman, 
we have a company called eRacer and we put on big events on iRacing, which is the NASCAR endemic sim racing platform. We broadcast the events as really professionally. Uh, we have sponsors, we have racers, and we have a Discord channel with a couple thousand people in it, right? So how cool would it be for us to maybe incorporate an NFT into that or even a loyalty program into that if enough of our members are also crypto users or could be crypto users? So I, I just, I'm, I'm really interested in like that community aspect. And I think that that's one of the first things that I look at. That is so cool. Have you thought about making like a, like digital fashion, like having your, um, your racing jerseys or your racing uniforms as like digital NFTs that people can buy to race on the platform and they could, you know, be like, I'm Landon today, like, or I'm racing at Landon. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean we we've kind of thought about a lot of different things. You know, the way that iRacing works, it's its own it's its own simulation, it's its own game, you could say. Um so I you know, we couldn't necessarily make a jersey that or the maybe the more applicable way um would be the paint scheme of the car, right? If there was a way that we could NFT the paint scheme of the car so that someone could buy it and then they own that paint scheme and they're the only ones that could use it on the platform, um, that would be a really cool use case. Now that would, you know, we'd have to incorporate with iRacing to be able to do that. But I do think that even just as a community, you know, we broadcast our events, our drivers have names, they have headshots, they have, you know, we incorporate our drivers and their personalities into the broadcast package. So maybe there's some value in saying like, Hey, this driver owns this little icon and it's a checkered flag or it's a trophy. And he's the guy that owns that icon. Um, so, you know, we put that next to his name all the time or, you know, this driver, she's interested in this and, you know, she owns this NFT and um, it's, it signifies her status in the community or something like that. Um, you know, we could incorporate that into how those people promote themselves within our platform and and on their other social media. I mean, the options are endless right now. It's still in like such early days that you can really, you know, like get creative with it and dream up all these things that don't even exist yet. And I, I do think like the more use cases we can come out like this, the more we'll, we'll be able to onboard, you know, the quote unquote normies. Um, into crypto. And I think NFTs is, I see NFTs as being like the primary way to onboard the masses on a crypto because that is just like, like the culture aspect of NFTs and like the community and the social aspect. Those are things that every human being can relate to, you know, like aside from the financial aspects and things like that. So. Yeah. And to me, the, the, the easiest way to explain it to a lot of people is, is, Hey, we're already doing this, right? You already do it when it comes to cryptocurrency, right, digital money or non-fungible tokens, we already do this in a centralized way, right? You have everybody knows what Starbucks rewards points are. Everybody knows what frequent flyer miles are. That's that's cryptocurrency, right? And and then as far as NFTs, like you know, we've you know people have used digital gift cards or coupons or things like that. Like we're already sending those things to each other. So I think one of the challenges of the space is, you know, A, okay, we can take a lot of these things that we're already doing, turn it into crypto and use blockchain to make an application somewhere else. Um, and so that's that's one way. But then the other thing too is, hey, maybe there's a lot of things that don't need to be on a blockchain, right? So we got to make sure that you don't overdo it that way. I mean, back in 2017, I think that we saw a lot of ICOs that didn't need to be ICOs, right? And that was probably part of the ICO bubble. Well, I'm sure that there's going to be loyalty tokens and NFT communities that like they didn't need to be tokenized or they didn't need to be on a blockchain. They could have just continued to operate the way that they did operate. So the little bit of the challenge is navigating like, hey, A, does this have the, a, a really smart use case? And then B, does it need to be on a blockchain? Does it need to have all this technology in it? 100%. And speaking of the ICO boom from back in 2017, a lot of people are comparing NFTs today to ICOs back in 2017. How do you view like the the big NFT hype nowadays? Do you see this as like a boom or do you see this as just the beginning and we're just going up from here? Um, like how do you view the, the, the ecosystem that we're in today? Well, to me, it's really it's both. And a lot of it is kind of just what I said, right? So 
you know, back in the ICO boom, there was a couple of really good ones and they take off and then it was really easy to duplicate. So there's a lot of companies that used it as startup capital or, or, you know, people were just buying into these ICOs. And ultimately the bust of it all was, I think, realizing, well, a lot of these companies ICO that didn't need to be, you know, it's like you're, you're tokenizing things that don't have to be tokenized. Um, and I would say that in terms of the NFTs, it's probably going to see the same thing, right? There's going to be a lot of NFT projects that pop up and they're going to get a bunch of funding because um, people are making decisions so fast. But then when you peel back the layers, maybe you realize it's like, hey, if all this is is a JPEG and the JPEG's not really worth anything and people lose interest in it, well, then that's where it can bust, right? But there's going to be a fraction of this of this boom, you could say, where these communities really do find good use cases for their projects. And they do find smart ways to harness the energy of their community and turn it into more than just the image that's attached to the, to the secret keys. Right. And, and that's where a community like badass bowls um, or any one of these other NFT communities, you don't want to underestimate. You don't want to, to sh- be too short sighted on what they can do with that that fraternity right with with that relationship of of such a large group of people and and i think that if you know if you think of the way that tech companies in the last couple decades have continued to surprise people on the amount of money they can make and what they can build just because they have a huge user base um that that would be an interesting comparison or that would be where i would say, hey, look at these companies that 20 years ago, you couldn't have ever imagined that they would turn into what they are today, but they really did because they had a million users, right? And when you have that many users, you're basically unstoppable. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love the shout out to unstoppable. The way that I see it is sort of like, I, I think like the all the money in NFTs right now is just very condensed into like a few use cases, you know? So we're really seeing like art as the big use case. And then now with these like, these like uh, profile pick avatars, like the badass bulls, or you see the core cats, the apes, the punks, the penguins, all of these big ones out there. Like this is the main use case we're seeing right now. But I think the uh, number of use cases that we could use NFTs for are, you know, just like 100x what we're seeing right now. And a lot of that we can't even imagine. It's like if you ask somebody to imagine Airbnb or Uber, you know, back in like the beginning days of the internet, it was impossible to imagine. And so I, I think we'll continue to see NFTs expand and grow, but probably just like instead of in this one vertical of art that we've seen so far, it'll probably branch out into different verticals is sort of how I see it. Easily, easily. I mean, that's like Amazon was a bookstore, you know, at the at the start. That's the evolution of startup tech. You know, I'm 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 actually thinking of Peter Thiel's book right now, Zero to One, and, and where he, the lean startup would say, or the lean startup as well would say, to find a niche, right, and dominate that niche. And and in a lot of ways, the market is sort of doing that with NFTs, with art. You know, it's like, well, what's the simplest? What's the simplest thing we can do with this technology, right? Okay, well, let's attach a unique piece of artwork to it. I, I guess the free market is proof of concepting that idea. Yeah, exactly. Um, so looking into the future, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on like, what do you see as the biggest barriers that are preventing mainstream adoption of crypto? Like if the end goal is mainstream adoption of crypto, what needs to change between now and then in order to reach our end goal? Probably ease of use um, and uh, just simplicity, which which we're really getting there. Uh, you know, you take where we were at in terms of buying and selling crypto bitcoin five years ago um and i say five years ago because i feel like the last time we had a really mainstream push and and you know a a huge bull market and a price spike uh, was 2017 and back then there weren't a lot of places you could go to to buy crypto and you know you definitely were very limited on your options in terms of buying crypto from from your mobile device um, you know, there were options you could do on your browser. The exchanges were, you know, kind of weird. You know, the sign up process, you didn't really know where you were putting your money. 
there wasn't a lot of regulation around it at the time. So KYC wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of when KYC was really became a thing. Now, Voyager is a platform you can sign up and be buying crypto in minutes, right? Just no different than your Robinhood account in buying stocks. So, so I think ease of use is a, is a really um, important thing. And, and then for things like NFTs and, you know, using a MetaMask wallet on your, on your smart, smartphone, um, those are things that didn't exist, right? Five years ago. So uh, those are all sort of going to just get us step-by-step closer to the most simplest version to where my grandmother could use it or maybe not even necessarily my grandmother but like my friend who you know has a smartphone but maybe he's not tech savvy necessarily uh, the ability for someone like that to not just buy bitcoin but also buy nfts um, and trade nfts without losing their keys or sending it to the wrong address and or being intimidated by that by being able to look at a a market um, and say, hey, my NFT, I should sell it. I should list it. I should bid on this one. Those are all kind of the interactions that every iteration that these platforms like OpenSea and and then on the crypto brokerage side, Voyager, every iteration that they have that makes that easier and more efficient for the, the simplest level will will help with mainstream adoption. Yeah, 100%. And I know this is like an impossible question, but I just like to ask everybody this. If you could just, you know, time travel yourself 10 years into the future, where do you see crypto being there, like in terms of how people are interacting with it day to day? And I I guess like to reframe this, like in your ideal world, you know, if crypto progresses at the rate that like you believe it should, where do you hope to, to see crypto in 10 years? I, I mean, I think 10 years from now in my fantasy land, um, Bitcoin is is probably worth over a million dollars. And I think that the crypto space, and this, this comes from, no, you know, seeing Voyager and knowing the path that Voyager is headed and where Steve and his team are trying to go. I think that 10 years from now, crypto has absolutely challenged the legacy financial system and, and is holding them accountable for how they interact with their customers. And I think that the customers in the future with because of crypto will have more authority with their money and and more ability to to determine what their money is used for and and how it returns value to them. Yeah, 100%. And then what's in the future for you like in terms of racing, in terms of crypto, are you going to like work full-time in crypto one day? Are you going to keep racing for another 10 years? Like, what are your plans? You know, I'm definitely racing in the future and uh, maybe 10 years from now, I'm not sure. I'll be 42. Uh, I could easily race into my 40s. A lot of drivers do it. I've always said that I think I want to be retired by the time I'm 40. Uh, But I, you know, hopefully I'm I'm winning a lot of races over the next couple of years and, and hopefully I'm doing it with Voyager. We've got a lot of great things that we're working on together. So uh, you never know what can happen there, but in the, uh, definitely in the near term future, I'm racing and involved in crypto. Um, I would love to to work for crypto companies, and I don't know what that would mean. I, I think I just have a tremendous platform as a NASCAR driver, and and as if I can continue doing that, then I'll be able to leverage that into um, involvement with crypto companies or or just into the space. Um, and contribute to that community in whatever way I'm needed or or could add value. Yeah, I mean, I think you'll be a shoe in at like any crypto company that you want to work at after your racing career is done. So uh, I wouldn't worry too much there. <laughs> um, and then lastly, I like to wrap up every podcast episode with a segment called Explain Your Tweet. This is where I go through your Twitter account and I pull out some interesting or funny or oh, cryptic no. tweets give you a chance to explain them. Um, I've got a few random ones. The first one is actually relevant. So let's start with that. This is from July 31st, 2021. You said, I'm glad Twitter didn't exist when I was a teenager trying to make it in racing. Uh, This is a quote tweet for somebody that says, sometimes when I read heavy criticism towards drivers on this app, I forget that a majority of these drivers are just kids. Uh, Yeah. So like totally it. That's a good one. If you're going to be a public figure of any kind, whether a racer or a celebrity or anything, I think you have to brace yourself for a lot of uh, internet trolls. But I was wondering, like, in the racing community, how bad is it? Like, do you actually get hate messages? And, like, like how bad is it in the racing community? 
You know, I, I, I'm very fortunate. I haven't gotten a ton of hate online. Um, I've had plenty of criticism. Um, you know, I have certain ways to handle it. I think, I think for a lot of people that get a ton of hate, there's a different process for handling it. Um, for me, I've gotten enough, just enough that, um, it's almost like a rule. If I, all I have to do is respond back or have some sort of like smart, calculated, thank you or whatever. They just like, oh, oh man, big fan. I'm just kidding with you or something like that. Uh, but I mean, I haven't dealt with it at a, at a scale and I'm fortunate for that. But that's a really good tweet that you brought up because I would like to explain that tweet. It was in reference to uh, a crash that happened in another race, a race that I was not involved in, two very young drivers, teenagers, and the crash was pretty, you know, egregious the way it was. It was obvious that it was intentional. You know, my comment I, I want at first wanted to comment on the crash and just be like, that's horrible. That driver should have been parked. And then I ran myself through this like process of like, well, I don't really want to like, put this kid on blast. I mean, even though what he just did was like, not, not cool. It was dangerous. He should be parked for it. Um, like I had my opinions on the crash, but, it, but, it, but then I was like, well, that could have been me when I was 16 on either side of it. And then it was just like, I was looking at all the messages and people were saying the meanest things, um, and then debating and, and I'm just like, I was like, wow, I actually, I'm just glad that I didn't, that Twitter didn't exist when I was in that kid's position because a, I could have been that kid. I could have wrecked someone on purpose for the dumbest reason and gotten put on blast for it publicly. I, you know, could have gone out and said something stupid on social media um, that is totally regrettable, but because you're 16, you know, you, you, you know, you get out of the car and you just crashed a guy. So you, you know, you say something that you didn't mean about him or whatever. Um, I, I just was like, all of that was kind of coming to a head. And that's why I tweeted that. It was just like, you know what? I'm just glad social media didn't exist when I was 16. Um, because when I was 16, I was just able to focus on racing. Um, and, and that's what I did, but I was, I, I'm, I'm glad that like at a young age I did, you know, I was on the internet a lot. I was, a, I always kind of call myself a child of the internet and I knew, you know, that the internet is forever. Um, but you know, I, I definitely don't envy being 16 years old or 15 years old and trying to succeed at a sport or trying to succeed at something, um, which requires making yourself a public figure. I mean, these these kids are on social media because a they want to be, but also their sponsors want them to be, and their teams need them, you know, in the limelight. Um, so then you just open yourself up to a lot of criticism, and um, and then like I said, because you're a teenager, you're also susceptible to say dumb things. <laughs> and honestly, like because we're around the same age, I think about you know I'm just glad Instagram didn't exist when we were in middle school and high because I just imagine, you know, like all the bullying that you already deal with in middle school, high school, and then, you know, these like young girls that already have all these like body image issues and all these issues. And then on top of that, you've got the whole world commenting on that publicly, you know, it's just got to like, props to any teenage girl nowadays who's able to like, just stay totally confident in who they are. And, you know, because it's not easy being out there in social media. Yeah, the kids, young kids definitely have some serious challenges that, that, you know, we dealt with in other ways, but they deal with it in the digital world. And the, the challenge ultimately to me is in the digital world, things are scalable, you know, by a thousand, right? So even, you know, girls had body image challenges when we were in high school, um, but it wasn't scalable to the million people, right? It was scalable to your community, to your school. And, and, uh, but now, I mean, gosh, when kids have 10,000 followers on Instagram, which high schoolers do, right? Like kids are popular in their towns and in their cities. Uh, I don't envy that at all. And I've got kids, so I'm a parent. So I don't know how I'm going to deal with that in the next 10, 15 years. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck. You'll figure something out. Um, and then real quick, I've got another tweet. This one is totally random. This is from July 23rd, 2021. You said, I go to the beach once a year. Every year I have to buy flip-flops because that's the only time I wear them in 365 days. That's a flip-flop policy you all should consider. <laughs> what? A lot of questions here. Well, like, what's going on here? Why do you go to the beach once a year? Why do you refuse to wear flip-flops when you're not at the beach and like, why can't you just keep the same pair year over year? 
<laughs> that that line of questioning you just asked has literally sounded like my wife had asked me when I put out that tweet and she gave me a hard time about buying flip-flops. Um, so a little exaggeration. I think I do go to the beach maybe more than once a year because we race in Daytona and we always make it out to the beach. But we have a family vacation with my in-laws to the beach once a year. So that was my once a year. That was my comment about going to the beach once a year. Not a big flip-flop guy. You're not going to see me wearing flip-flops anywhere other than the beach on family vacation. And I don't buy fancy flip flops, so about you know the the twenty bucks that I spend at whatever surf shop or whatever the first place we go to to buy my my flip flops for the week, and then I wear them uh, walking back and forth from the beach, and then we're done. I throw them away, and I don't need flip flops again for the rest of the year. Not a big flip flop guy. You just don't like how it feels on your feet, or do you have some like philosophical like dilemma with flip flops, or what's going on there? I, I just to me the function for flip flops is only for walking to and from the beach. Like you can rinse them off easily; they're not going to get all dirty with your shoes. And other than that, they're they suck to walk in; they're uncomfortable. So why would you wear flip flops for any reason other than walking out the door to make sure you don't burn your feet on the asphalt walking across the street and then into the hot sand? Like they work great for that one thing. And nothing else. Just prove me wrong, somebody. Okay, cool. I'll accept that. I'll stop grilling you about flip flops. I accept your answer. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, uh, before you go, Landon, um, tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally. And then feel free to plug away at anything you'd like to Voyager, the esports stuff you're working on, um, badass bowls, anything you'd like. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you. Um, So I'm on Twitter um, at Landon Castle and instagram you can pretty much if you go on any social media and and type in landon castle you'll probably find me but i spend most of my time on twitter because i'm really interactive um, and i like talking to fans my dms are open i I get a lot of interesting dms especially now that i'm in the crypto space like publicly Uh, so i get a lot of interesting dms and then uh you know i'm also on discord as well and enjoy uh my community on discord the e-racer community which is my esports company Parker Kligerman and I, he's also a NASCAR driver. We put on these events and we have a great community there. Um, And I'm always up to something with Voyager. They're a great platform for buying and selling crypto. So if you need a place to do that, or if you want to hold your crypto on there and earn some interest, um, that's a great one. Uh, Maybe send me a tweet and I'll get you a a promo code or something like that. On Voyager, they they, they do a really cool promo code for myself and anybody really on the platform. If you share your link, and somebody signs up, funds their account with $100 and makes a trade, both parties gets another $25 in uh, Bitcoin, which is pretty cool. So it's a good way to get an entry into crypto if you're not familiar. Sweet. I'm going to DM you right after this for your promo code for Voyager and sign up and get both of us some free monies. I love it. Love it. Love (laughs) it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Landon, to come on the podcast. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in as always. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you, and thanks again for listening.